Hey everyone, this is Pastor Matt Para, and we are going to spend some time together studying Daniel chapter 9. Now, not the whole chapter, because there's so much there that I couldn't put a commentary into, you know, of the whole chapter into a short enough time frame. But we're just going to study the prophecy, which is found in verses 24 through 27 in this commentary. And I'll leave the rest of the lesson up to you guys. It's, there's a lot of powerful stuff there that could be commented on and that can be discussed. For the sake of time, I'm going to jump right into the prophecy. So in essence, Daniel finds himself at the end of a predicted time frame. It's a 70-year prophecy that was given by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. And also in chapter 25, that 70-year prophecy is mentioned where God is saying that Jerusalem will be destroyed and desolate for 70 years. But that at the end of that time period, God is going to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so Daniel chapter 9 begins with Daniel saying that he discovered the 70-year prophecy. And so he begins to pray. He begins to confess his sins and the people's sins. He shows by praying that he wants to participate with God in the fulfillment of the prophecy, the 70-year prophecy. There is a difference between what biblical scholars call classical prophecies and apocalyptic prophecies. Now, classical prophecies are prophetic time frames that have to do with the local situation that the prophet themselves are in. An apocalyptic prophecy, on the other hand, is a prophecy that is made by a prophet that extends from around the time of the prophet down to the very end of time, or that stretches over long spans of human history. So in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, you have what is considered apocalyptic prophecy. This is prophecy that has to do with long periods of time, and that often extend down to the very end of time. But a classical prophecy is a prophecy like the 70-year prophecy given by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 and 25. It definitely is a, a time, a, a significant amount of time, but it's not apocalyptic in nature, a prophesying down to final events in world history that have to do with more than the local situation of the Jewish nation. So Daniel begins to pray, he begins to confess his sins, and then he's visited by a special guest. Notice here in verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the, on be, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, last week, we talked about how the prophecy of Daniel 9 that we're about to study and the prophecy of Daniel 8, the 2,300 days, are connected. We gave a little bit of evidence as to why that's the case. And if you'd like to hear that, I recommend that you go and listen to uh, the Sabbath School commentary for last week. 
The Bible here says that the person who is sent by God to Daniel is the angel Gabriel. And Daniel mentions that he had seen the angel Gabriel previously. Now, what is that referencing? That's referencing when Gabriel was explaining to him the vision, the whole vision of Daniel chapter 8. Right here in that statement is a connection between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. You have the same angel coming in Daniel chapter 9 to deliver a prophecy to Daniel, who came in Daniel chapter 8 to explain a prophecy to Daniel. He says he had come and I had seen him in the vision previously. Now notice this, verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight to understand or skill to understand. At the beginning of your prayers, the command was issued and I have come to see you for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now notice that. I came to give you skill to understand. Now listen to me. You're highly esteemed and take heed or give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, when Daniel chapter 8 ends, Daniel lacks understanding of the vision, but not of the whole vision of Daniel 8 just the 2,300 day part that referred to some cleansing of some sanctuary. In Daniel chapter 8, you see a larger vision of a ram and of a he-goat and of a little horn and of a sanctuary cleansing. And then you have an angel coming, Gabriel, to interpret the vision. But Gabriel says, shut up the words of the 2,300 days. They're for many days into the future. So Gabriel explains everything in the vision except the 2,300 days. So Daniel 8 ends with Daniel saying, oh, I was sick for many days. And, and, and there was no one who could, who could understand the vision. Now, he has to be referring to the 2,300 days because it was explained to him what everything else in Daniel 8 meant besides that. Further to this, we showed last week a linguistic connection in the Hebrew language between Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. The word that's a, the word that is translated vision that's assigned to the 2,300 days is the same word that's being used here. So in short, when the larger vision of Daniel 8 is being referred to, the, the Hebrew word used to describe that larger vision is hezon. And the particular word that is assigned to, to, to describe the 2,300 day prophecy is the Hebrew word Mara. Now, when the angel here says, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision, he's using the word Mara. So we see same angel, linguistic connection to Daniel chapter 8, and this whole idea of understanding, gain understanding for what you didn't understand. Now, some people would contend with what I'm saying and say, oh, listen, look, he's just interested in the Jewish temple. Well, what understanding does he lack about the Jewish temple and its rebuilding? None. He lacks understanding about the previous vision that Gabriel is referencing in Daniel chapter 8. And so we see that Daniel 8 and 9 are connected. Notice now, as we get into the prophecy itself in verse 24, 
70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Aha, we have another link between Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. The word that the NASB translates decreed is the Hebrew word shatak, which can be translated as cut off. Shatak is an onomatopoeia. That's a word that sounds like what it means. Shatak, cut off. You say shatak, it sounds like you're kind of like chopping something. And shatak can mean, can be translated fairly as cut off. So 70 weeks of time are cut off for your people. Well, the question is begged. Cut off from what? Maybe the prophecy he didn't understand fully that I'm coming to give you understanding about. Yes. Now remember, the prophecies are not given in isolation. The, the prophecies of Daniel all combine together to communicate future events. And we talked last week about the principle of repeat and enlarge. And so we can't interpret the prophecies in isolation. That is what I consider losing the forest for the trees and ripping prophecies out of their larger context. That is not a responsible way to study. And so we understand Daniel 9 in the larger context of what's happening in the book of Daniel. He didn't have understanding of the 2,300-day prophecy, which brings the world to a time of judgment, to a sanctuary cleansing. And, but he doesn't know when that can, that, that's going to happen because he doesn't have a starting point for the 2,300-day prophecy. So 70 weeks of the 2,300-day prophecy are cut off for your people, Daniel. Well, who are his people? The Jewish nation. Now, now before I get into to talking more about the 70 weeks, I just wanted to make mention of the fact, and we talked about this a lot last week, that in Daniel 8 and verse 17, the angel Gabriel said to Daniel that the vision itself, the whole vision, refers to the end of time. It, all, it has relevance at the end of time. Now, we know no earthly sanctuary can have re- relevance at the end of time. And no earthly cleansing of any earthly sanctuary can have a, any relevance at the end of time. So the little horn, all of its business, all of its actions, and the sanctuary cleansing that is prophesied about happening after 2,300 days it is all referring to end time stuff. It connects with and extends down into the end of time. We need a starting point to understand it. And Daniel 9 gives that. And we talked about that last week. I know I'm being a bit redundant, but uh, just in case someone didn't hear last week, there you go. 70 weeks are cut off for your people. And then he says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. You could summarize this by saying, to get it together. The Jews were sent as exiles into Babylon, and their nation was destroyed because they continually, continually rejected God and rejected the covenant and were unfaithful to the covenant and prostituted themselves and ran after the ways of the heathens that were around them, the heathen nations around them. They were idolatrous and they hung on to their idolatry. They didn't appreciate their privilege as a people and so rejected the God of their covenant. And, and so God said, okay, I'll, I'll give you up. I'll, I'll give you over to the consequences of your choices. And his wrath was raised against them, and he judged them. And they were destroyed by the Babylonians. And so he's saying, okay, 70 weeks. I'll give you 70 weeks more. They're cut off of this larger prophecy about judgment. Interesting. I'll give you guys 490 years to get it together. Now, 
the Christ is going to come within that 70 uh, week time frame, that 70 prophetic week time frame. And he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to make full atonement for sins. And so the Jews getting it together and fulfilling all the words of this prophecy is going to include them accepting the Messiah. And it's interesting because the prophecy of the 70 weeks has two subjects that it's focusing on. Number one, Jerusalem and the temple. And number two, the Messiah, Messiah the Prince. The the prophecy says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. So now we have a starting point for the 70-week prophecy and consequently the 2,300-day prophecy. The text says from the going forth of the command to not just rebuild, but to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be. And then it basically says 69 prophetic weeks, which is 483 years. But I want you to focus just for a second on the language here in Daniel 9.25. I mentioned it's not just the rest, it's not just the rebuilding of Jerusalem that this decree that's predicted will affect. It's the restoration, the restoring of civil authority to the Jewish nation. So not only was the nation that was the, was the capital Jerusalem of is the capital of the Jewish nation Jerusalem destroyed, but Jerusalem or the Jews lost all of their power to rule themselves effectively. When the Babylonians came, their whole nation was done. They were destroyed. They were effectively dismantled and dissolved. So not only did they have a place where they could reside, they had no authority to rule themselves. This decree that's predicted that kicks off the 70-week prophecy or the 490-year prophecy that's cut off of the larger 2,300-day prophecy is going to begin at a decree to restore the civil power to the Jews and to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, the only decree that affected those two things was the decree that's found in Ezra chapter 7, given by Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor, in 457 BC. So this prophecy is basically saying that from 457 BC, count forward a certain amount of time and that will bring you to Messiah the Prince. Okay, now check this out. Check out what it says here. It's powerful. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, how long is that going to be? There will be seven weeks, that's 49 days, and 62 weeks. Add that to the seven weeks and you've got 69 weeks, which is 483 days. Now, I think we did a fair job last week of proving, proving that a day in symbolic Bible prophecy refers to an actual year. So what we have here is the prophecy saying from 457 BC, count forward 483 years and you will come to Messiah, the prince. Now, when you add 483 years to 457 BC, you come to the date 27 AD. Now, this is powerful. Follow this, please. Follow this, please. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Bible says that Jesus was anointed at his baptism. He was anointed as Christ at his baptism. The word Christ or the word Messiah simply means anointed. So when was Jesus anointed? Well, according to Acts 10.38, he was anointed or made to be 
uh, Messiah in the truest, most full and complete sense at his baptism, that's when he began his public ministry. That's when he revealed himself as Christ. That's when he, in effect, became the Messiah, the anointed. Okay, When a king in Israel was to rule, they had to first be anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed with the oil of the person of the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. And you'll remember there in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to John the Baptist at the River Jordan, and he's going to be baptized. And he goes into the water, and he comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Now, the baptism of Jesus is mentioned in Matthew 3. That anointing is mentioned in Matthew 3, but it's also mentioned in Luke 3 that Jesus was baptized. Now, follow this all, okay? 483 years from the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in 457, takes us to 27 AD. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 says that Jesus was anointed at his baptism. Okay, we talked about the fact that that's happening in Matthew 3. The Holy Spirit comes down and anoints him. It also mentions in Luke 3 that Jesus was baptized. So the the story of the baptism of Jesus is in Matthew 3 and in Luke 3. Now, when Luke chapter 3 begins, a date is referenced. The chapter begins by saying that it is presently the time of the 15th year of the reign of of Tiberius Caesar, which, my friends, happened to be 27 AD. So the prophecy, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of a command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be 483 years, or seven weeks and 62 weeks, 483 prophetic days, 483 actual years, add them to 457 BC, you end up in 27 AD. Huh, what happens that year? Jesus is baptized. And that, according to Acts 10 and verse 38, was when he fully became Messiah, when he was the anointed one. Powerful. Jesus comes right on time. We do not believe cunningly devised fables. We have evidence upon which we can base our faith that Jesus was who he claimed to be, who we profess him as. He is the savior of mankind. He's the lamb of God. He's the sent. He's the chosen. He's the second Adam. He's our savior. He's God. From the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem and to Messiah the prince shall be 483 actual years, 483 years. That leads us to, to 27 AD. Now, some people have asked, why does the 70 weeks get split up into sections. Why does Daniel say in Daniel 9, 25, uh, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince will be seven weeks, that's one time frame, and 62 weeks, that's a second time frame. Well, it's simple. It's saying that the temple and the city would be restored and rebuilt within that seven prophetic week time frame, or in 49 years, even in troublesome times. We studied the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra in our last quarterly lesson study. And that's what that was all about, was the restoring and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, even in troublesome times. So that happens within the 49-year time frame of the first seven weeks of the 70-week prophecy. And then you add to that 62 weeks of years, and you come to 27 AD. That brings you to Messiah the Prince. So the larger prophecy of the 70 weeks is divided into subsections, because it's describing certain events that will happen within the prophecy itself, which actually brings greater confirmation of the veracity of the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So 70 weeks are determined upon your people, 
are cut off of the 2300-day prophecy of judgment for the Jewish nation to, in essence, accept the Messiah. Get it together, guys. Get it together, guys. After 483 years from 457 BC, you're going to come to the Christ. I said to you already in this commentary that there are two focal points or two subjects that are going to be addressed in this 70-week prophecy. Number one is the city of the Jews, Jerusalem. Number two is the coming Messiah. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but it's important to understand when you interpret this 70-week prophecy that verses 26 and 27 of the 70-week prophecy or of Daniel 9 are written in a Hebrew form of poetry that is called alternating parallels. It's where you talk about two subjects alternatively, okay, one after the other. Therefore, you are to read verses 26 and 27 in parts. 26, the first half of 26 and the first half of 27 are talking about the Messiah. And the second half of 26 and 27 are talking about the city. Okay, it's powerful. So in verse 25, we have the city mentioned and we have the Messiah mentioned. The time that Messiah is going to arrive is mentioned in verse 25. And the rebuilding of Jerusalem is mentioned in verse 25. Now, the city is mentioned in verse 26 and 27, and Messiah is mentioned in 26 and 27. But in 26 and 27, it mentions that Messiah is not going to be accepted. He's not going to be celebrated, but he's going to be rejected. The Bible says he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. And it's going to say that he causes sacrifices and oblations to cease because he's crucified. We'll talk about that in detail in a second. But then it also says that the, that the people of the Messiah, they destroy the city and the sanctuary. So not only in the 70-week prophecy is Jerusalem predicted to be rebuilt and restored, it's predicted again to be destroyed because the Jewish people reject the Christ. They reject the Messiah. So you see in the 70-week prophecy, Messiah comes, Messiah is rejected, and consequently rejects the people of the covenant and their city is destroyed. Okay? Now, follow me here because we're going to read verses 26 and 27 of Daniel chapter 9 the way it should be understood in the light of the fact that it was written in a form of Hebrew poetry. Now, follow this. We're beginning in Daniel 9 and verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, which come after the seven weeks, or after the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Stop right there and jump down to verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. I'm going to read that in succession and not tell you I'm jumping from verse 26 to 27. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That's the first half of verse 26 and 27. Now notice the second half. It's talking about the city. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Guys, this is powerful. 
The 70 weeks is just predicting the coming of the Messiah, the rejection of the Messiah, and consequently the rejection of the Jewish people. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. And in the middle of the 70th week, the last week of the 70-week prophecies, he'll cause sacrifices and grain offerings to cease. Now why, pray tell, would it say this? Well, because all the sacrifices in the ceremonial system of worship at the Hebrew temple were typological. They were figurative and they prefigured the coming one, the coming savior, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And so in Jesus, type met antitype. He was the real, he was the true. He was the one that everything pointed towards. And so three and a half years after he is anointed and begins his public ministry, he's crucified. You can do the chronology. You can find, you can, you can, you can crunch, you can do the calculations reading through the synoptic gospels and find that Jesus ministered from the point of his baptism for three and a half years. That's half of a prophetic week. So it says in the middle of the 70th week in Daniel 9, 27, the Messiah would cause the sacrifices and the grain offerings to cease. He causes them to cease because there's no more use for them because the real sacrifice that really pays for the sins of the world has come. All of the sacrificial services of the Old Testament just simply pointed forward. Now, when Jesus was crucified and offered up his life, the Bible says in Matthew 27, and I think it's verse 51, that the veil of the Jewish temple was ripped in two. Well, why would that have happened? Well, because Jesus has died for the sins of the world. He's going to be resurrected and he's going to ascend to heaven and he's going to inaugurate his ministry. He's going to inaugurate the true temple of God, which God erected and not men, the true temple. So he's the true Christ, the true lamb. He's the true priest. He's the true intercessor. And he's going to go minister in the true tabernacle. So when he's crucified, he brings an end to the sacrifices and oblations. And the temple service is rendered ineffectual or useless or meaningless because it was a means to an end. It was not an end in itself. And so when it met its fulfillment, it has no more use. He brings the sacrifice to an end. Now, I want to just mention a few things to you that indicate that Jesus knew of the 70-week prophecy and he interpreted it and understood it exactly the way that I'm teaching you now. Some people, when they read the 70 weeks prophecy, they, uh, they throw the 70th week off into the future. Like they place an artificial gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And what they do is they interpret verse 27 as an antichrist figure who's coming because they don't read it in, in light of the fact that it's Hebrew poetry and it's, they're not reading it the way Daniel intended it to be read. It's actually, and I won't go into it, but it's actually the idea was concocted by a Catholic Jesuit priest. I can't remember the guy's name. I think it was De La Cunza or something. I'm not so particularly sure. He's the father of preterism. Um, and basically he applies to Antichrist what actually refers to Jesus. But when you read the passage correctly, it's as clear as the noonday sun. Um, Jesus knew the 70-week prophecy. That's evident. Uh, In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Should I forgive them up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, I don't say to you, you should forgive up to seven times. I say you should forgive 70 times seven. Now, what's 70 times 7? It's 490. What's 70 weeks? 490 days 
or literal years. Is Jesus not referencing the 70-week prophecy? I don't think that Jesus is trying to give us a precise number of times that it would be appropriate to forgive a person. How could you even do that? How could there be a precise time that you, a precise number that would work for how often you should forgive anyone? Jesus is referencing the 70 weeks that were cut off of the larger 2,300 day prophecy for the Jews. In Matthew chapter 21, there is a, a parable shared by Jesus to the religious leaders of his day. And it's about a landowner who leases his vineyard to some people. And when the time of the harvest comes, he wants to receive of the harvest. He wants to receive what is his due. And so he sends some servants, but those who he leased his field to or his vineyard to, they stone them and beat them and they kill some of them. And so he sends servants again. And what happens? The exact same thing. So lastly, the landowner sends his son. Okay, now, guys, if you can't read into this, the history of the Jews and the rejection of Jesus, well, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Then uh, Jesus says, uh, they kill the son, thinking, oh, he's the one who gets the inheritance. Let's kill him and seize the inheritance. And then Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, what do you suppose this landowner is going to do when he finds out that they killed his son? And they said, oh, He's going to trash them. He's going to thrash them. He's going to destroy them. And he's going to lease out his field to some other people who deserve it. And then Jesus says, have you not heard that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, the chief cornerstone? This is wonderful and marvelous. And it's the Lord's doing. And he that falls upon this stone must be broken. But he who this stone falls upon will be ground to powder. And then it says, when they realized that he was speaking about them. Okay? Messiah rejected, the people of God destroyed, and their city destroyed, the Jewish nation rejected. Okay? In Matthew 22, there's a story, a parable that Jesus tells of a marriage feast, and he sends his servants to come to the marriage feast of his son, but nobody comes. And the consequence in verse 6 and 7 is that he destroys their city. In Matthew 23, Jesus is repining the condition of Jerusalem, saying, Your house is left to you desolate, because often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, your city is left to you desolate. You, you're the people of the prince, but you've rejected me. Therefore, you're desolate. And then the disciples in Matthew 24, they come up and they show him the buildings of the temple because, you know, he's depressed and he's not really so happy and and so they're going to cheer him up by showing him the temple and its glory. And then Jesus says to the disciples, do you see this temple? I'm telling you that there's not going to be here left one stone upon another. So there you have it. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. This perfectly parallels the message of Daniel chapter 9. Now, do the Jews ever, even after this, you know, crucifixion of the Messiah and the testimony of the apostles as a nation? Do they accept? Do they repent? Well, many individual Jews do, a hundred percent, but the Jewish nation as a whole does not. And so as a consequence, God, he doesn't send the Babylonians this time. He sends the Romans. 
and the Romans destroy the city, and the Romans des- desolate the temple. Now, the, te- the temple was left desolate because the Jews rejected Jesus. So spiritually, they're desolate. And then they become physically desolated by a desolating power, the Romans. This is recapitulation of what transpired in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, they reject, they reject, they reject the prophets, the messengers of God. Okay, God sends Babylon. 70 years, you're desolate. Okay, this is a dress rehearsal of what will happen to you ultimately if you persist in this. Now, a 2,300-year prophecy of judgment that brings us down to the final judgment of earth and human history is, is given in Daniel 8. Daniel doesn't understand that prophecy. And so, Daniel 9, a 70-week prophecy is given to the people who are about to be restored. And it's about the coming one, the promised one, the Savior, God incarnate, the deliverer of the human race that is to be accepted by the Jews. And they together with him are going to proclaim the gospel to the world. Seventy weeks are cut off of that larger judgment prophecy for you and your people, Daniel, to get it together. But they don't. And the prophecy predicts the Messiah is rejected and the city is destroyed. So the Jewish nation suffers the same fate after the rejection of the Messiah at the hands of Rome that it suffered after they rejected God's messengers, the prophets in the Old Testament, at the hands of Babylon. And the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And he that is Christ's is Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He that is of faith is blessed with faithful Abraham. And so who then is a Jew? Who then is a covenant person of God? Whoever's born again, true Christ followers, Christ, Christ followers. For we are sons of God through faith in Jesus, Galatians 3.26. So effectively, the Jewish people, they lost their standing as God's holy nation, royal priesthood. That now becomes applicable. That language now becomes applied to Christ followers, the church, true believers. The church itself became corrupted through the course of Christian history, just like the Jewish nation. The New Testament is, in essence, how I shouldn't say this, But the history of the Christian church, not the New Testament, but the history of the Christian church follows exactly along the same lines as the history of the Jewish nation. The 70-week prophecy is a prophecy that leads down to the final judgment of the Jewish nation. The 2,300-day prophecy is a prophecy of judgment that leads down to the end of time, to the judgment of the whole world. The same thing that the Jews did, the Christian church did, prostituted itself prostituted itself, inculcated pagan ideals into the worship of God. And therefore, God says, come out of this prostituted form of Christianity, my people. Fear God and give him glory. Don't fear the beast. Don't feel fear these man-made versions of Christianity. And a remnant, a remnant is drawn out and called out to restore what Babylon destroyed. I want to just give one final little point here. I, th- I, I pray we've got a short amount of time. I've got to share some thoughts. I've shared a lot of thoughts. We focused just on the prophecy because I think this prophecy is important. And it's important that we interpret and understand it the right way. 70 weeks, 2,300 days, they're companion prophecies. They combine together to make one large prophecy. Um, the 70 weeks is a part of the 2,300 days. Uh, that's important to understand. That's important to know. The 70-week prophecy serves as a validation. It validates the 2,300-day prophecy. So just a final point here that I personally draw from the 70 weeks. The Jews were the covenant people of God. 
He made a covenant, an agreement with them at Horeb. They would be his people, and he'd be their God. They rejected the new covenant that he wanted to make with them through his son. And so he made it with all who would believe. He no longer goes through that designated nation. He goes through anyone who will just believe. The old covenant was a type, was a shadow of the new. And just like the services and sacrifices in the old covenant were symbolic in nature. The Jews didn't accept it, but you have. And the 2,300 days leads us to the day of judgment. We're living in the hour of judgment. We could, like the Jews, be found, weighed in the balances, and wanting. And I think the 70-week prophecy is a call to us to faith and confidence in Christ because it provides magnificent evidence that he was who he said he was. It inspires confidence in the larger testimony of the Bible. But further to to this, it provides a warning that God did uh, give 70 weeks to his people and they didn't accept it. And he's given 2,300 days to bring us down to judgment where the sanctuary is being cleansed. And Jesus is in the true tabernacle, which God pitched and not man. And the ministry of the priests on earth was all symbolic of the ministry in heaven. And there was a two-phased, there was a two-phased priestly ministry in the Old Testament sanctuary. And it's the same in the new. That 2,300 day prophecy leads to the very end of time. The text in that prophecy says that explicitly. So I guess the call to me, the call to you is let's be real. Let's be genuine Christ followers and follow the lamb wherever he goes. God bless you guys as you study this week. May the Lord lead you in Jesus name. Amen.